It is a really good song, and there's a lot that I want to say about it, but I won't. Um, the fact that your hope is unwavering, I hope that you know this morning, has nothing to do with you. Uh, if it had anything to do with you, your hope would be wavering like crazy. And so your hope is secure, and your eternity is secure because of Christ, His perfect life, death, and resurrection in your place. And that's a wonderful thing uh, that we're going to be thinking about a lot as we embark in this series in the book of Galatians. I'm excited for it. I hope that you are too. Uh, But before we turn our attention to the Word of God, let's go to Him in prayer one more time and ask Him for His help. Please pray with me. Our Father in Heaven, we do pray very simply that You would pour out Your Holy Spirit now as we look to Your Word. Fill me with Your Spirit so that I might be Your instrument to speak Your words to Your people. And we pray that Your Spirit would fill everyone who is going to hear your word preached today so that our lives might be changed and our hearts and our minds might be stirred to love you more, to love one another more. And we pray that our faith in the Lord Jesus and his righteousness that is ours through faith, we pray that you would continue to strengthen our trust in him today and as we make our way through this great letter to the Galatians. And we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you today. I missed being with you last week. had planned to preach this sermon one week ago. Uh, It's a good thing that the Lord's plans never fail, uh, because ours certainly do. Um, But we are returning now, friends. We've just been spending some time in recent weeks, at least in my time, in the pulpit, considering essentially mental and emotional health issues in our topical series on dealing with darkness. And now we are returning to the sort of more normal kind of preaching that we do in this church, often referred to as expositional preaching through books of the Bible. And just a couple of comments about expositional preaching. I like to do this from time to time, and today seems like a good day to do it, uh, given that we're starting this series this morning. We get sound doctrine from expositional preaching. We get sound doctrine, right teaching from expositional preaching. What I mean by that is this kind of preaching, this kind of study of the Bible, working through chunks of Scripture, big passages, forces us to wrestle with what's in the book. And it forces us to wrestle with passages in their immediate context. So, like today, we're going to be looking at the first five verses of Galatians in light of the letter itself, the letter as a whole. But it also forces us to deal with passages in light of the entire framework of the Bible, the redemptive historical framework of Scripture. And so when we come to passages in an expositional sense to preach them, We are getting sound doctrine from it because we're having to deal with the Bible on its own terms, in its own context. And so I hope that that means something to you. But I also wanted to make a couple of comments by way of what our goals are in expositional ministry. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, because I trust none of this happens in our own strength. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we hope to rightly and better understand the Word of God when we come to preach sermon series like this. We hope to have God's truth driven into our hearts and into our minds. We aim, we hope, that we will rejoice over God's truth. That it won't just be, okay, I think I understand the concept, brother, thank you, but that it would evoke joy in what's revealed to us through the Word of God. We pray and hope by the power of the Spirit that the preaching of the Word would make us more like Jesus. That we would be changed, really, transformed through the ministry of the Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, not exhaustively, but finally for today, a goal in expositional preaching and honestly a reason that you come to church on the regular is to have your hope and your assurance and your joy more deeply grounded in Jesus. 
You come to church on a weekly basis and sit under preaching like this for faith and assurance. And that's the goal. That you would be grounded in Christ all the more every single Sunday when we open the book. And that's why I understand it to be my job primarily in preaching to hold Christ out to you every single week because He is what you need and He is what I need. So it's good to just kind of have these things in our minds as we're about to embark on yet another expositional series even in the young life of our church. We've made it through a few books now. And we're beginning Galatians today. And before I read our text, I'm going to give some more like, sort of information on it after I read the, the passage for today. But just a brief overarching comment. If you were to ask, what is Galatians about? What is Galatians about? At the risk of sounding maybe ridiculously reductionistic. This letter is about the gospel. This letter is about the good news of the righteousness of God being counted to sinful people through faith in Christ alone. That's what it's about. And we're going to get to look at it over 24 sermons. The essential question of this letter, have this in your mind each week as we come to the text and as you're reading it, I hope, on your own. Have this question in your mind. How can a person stand before a holy God without being condemned? How can sinners be made right with a holy God? It's the question. It's the million dollar question of your life and mine. And the answer to that question is by faith in the Son of God. Full stop. Not by faith in the Son of God plus anything. No way. And we're going to get to think through that together over a number of weeks. And I am happy that that's the case. And then as we continue to work our way through the letter, another question that I would also want you to have in your mind is not simply this, how am I reconciled to God? How can I stand before Him and not be condemned? But also, how do I live the Christian life? How do I live the Christian life? It's not just, okay, we're talking about justification, reconciliation, being counted righteous, and that happens at one point in my life, and then I just kind of go about living in my own strength or something. No. Ask yourself, how am I to live the Christian life? And the answer that Galatians, and I would argue the entire witness of Scripture gives, is that you live the Christian life by faith in the Son of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And just one other thought for you before we open our Bibles. If you want to go ahead and open to Galatians 1, that might be wise. If there is any doctrine that Satan would love to destroy in the church, it's this. If there is any doctrine, I would, I would state my ministry on this. If there is any doctrine that Satan would love to destroy in the church, it is this doctrine. That we are made, counted, I should say, righteous before God. By trusting in God the Son. It's all of faith. It has everything to do with what Christ has accomplished. That is your hope. It's the ground of your assurance. It's the ground of your joy. And Satan would love nothing more than to destroy that truth. And this is a truth that is often distorted. And so our hope and prayer as a church is that we'll get to stare at this and wrestle with this and come to terms with this in a way that will be shockingly good for us. So if you have your Bibles open already, and I hope that you do, Galatians chapter 1. This is one of the many letters, one of the letters of Apostle Paul uh, that he wrote in the first century. This letter is written to the churches in Galatia, which was a region of West Asia, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So we're going to look today at the first five verses of Galatians chapter 1, and I'm going to go ahead and read those verses for us. Listen now to the Word of God. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, 
to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As I've already said, this letter was written by none other than the Apostle Paul. There is practically zero debate in any kind of scholarship as to the fact that Paul wrote this letter. Again, as I've already said, Galatia was a region of West Asia, modern-day Turkey. He is writing to the churches of that region. Paul would have preached the gospel and been involved in the planting, the starting of these churches on his first missionary journey, which we would read about um, mostly in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. That might be a good exercise for you to do uh, at some point in the near future. Read those two chapters of Acts and you will read about the missionary journey on which Paul most likely was a part of starting these very congregations that he is writing to. As far as the date of this letter, it would have been written possibly as early as the late 40s, certainly by the early 50s A.D. So this is within 20 years of the Lord Jesus' death, this letter would have been written. It's one of the earlier letters in the New Testament, uh, and it is an excellent one. Just a few words about the situation, about what has prompted it. This is good for us to have in mind as we look to the letter. We're always concerned, right, with authorial intent. What was the author meaning to accomplish in writing the letter under the inspiration and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? It seems, as you read the letter in its entirety, that the Galatian Christians were being influenced by false teachers. They were being influenced by people who were saying that keeping the law, or at least parts of it, there will be specific things mentioned like circumcision, but the real issue is the law in general. They were being taught that keeping the law, or at least parts of the law, were necessary for salvation. In order to be reconciled to God, yes, faith in Christ, all of those things, repentance from sin, but there are these at least aspects of the law that you need to keep in order to be right with God. It is very much this Jesus plus kind of gospel, right? It's not a debate over the person and the work of Christ so much. It's not an issue of Christ being fully or truly God and truly man. It's not an issue of Him dying for sinners. It's not a debate about those things like we might assume in a gospel debate. It is about the place of the law and good works, essentially, when it comes to our standing before God. In the words of Martin Luther, these false apostles, these false teachers had darkened the righteousness of faith amongst the Galatians. A darkening of the righteousness of faith, or the righteousness that comes by faith amongst these believers. And that is a serious, big deal. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, it is no small evil to quench the light of the gospel, to lay a snare for consciences, and to remove the distinction between the Old and New Testaments. The way I might phrase that last piece to be more particular would be, it is no small evil to remove the distinction between the law and the gospel. Right? That's what I think Calvin means. To remove the distinction between the Old and New Testament is to remove the distinction between the law and the gospel. To preach the law, at least in some measure, as a kind of gospel is an evil thing to do. And that's what seems to be going on in these churches in Galatia. Just a couple of other thoughts for you again to have in your mind, especially as we're looking at the first two chapters. You're going to see Paul speak to these things. It seems that these false teachers, these false apostles, they opposed the Apostle Paul and the gospel that he preached. That's clear enough. But they also seem to have made some charges against him to undermine him. And he's going to speak to those. First, they... They accuse him, it seems, that he had gotten his gospel from human beings rather than from God. That it was just some kind of hearsay, human concoction, and it wasn't the gospel of God. And he's going to speak to that 
in verses 11 through 24 of chapter 1 quite specifically. He's going to talk about his former life in Judaism. The fact that he used to persecute the church, that he was zealous, that he had advanced beyond many of his peers, etc. in Judaism. He's talking about that because he's like, look, there is no logical, reasonable explanation for my change in course of life other than God Almighty revealed His Son to me. It seems too that these false teachers were accusing the Apostle Paul of distorting the gospel that he had heard from the Jerusalem apostles. Right? So not only did he make up some kind of human gospel, but then the real gospel that's come from the apostles in Jerusalem where the church started, Paul has distorted that. And that's where in the first ten verses of chapter 2, he's going to make it clear that no, I'm actually in agreement with those apostles in Jerusalem and they are in agreement with me. And then finally, thirdly, it seems that these false teachers had tried to undermine Paul by saying that he had distorted the gospel, the real one, in an attempt to please people. He was aiming to please these Gentile Christians. And that's why he had removed these aspects of the law from his gospel. You see that quite plainly in chapter 1 and verse 10, where he asks, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Answer, no. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He is speaking to the fact that he is not preaching this gospel in any sense to please people. He's preaching it because he got it from God through the revelation of God the Son to him. He's in accord with the Jerusalem apostles. And he is not preaching this out of any kind of fear of man, but because it is true. And so what I want us to do now, friends, is to briefly consider the, the first five verses of, of this letter together. I want us to consider Paul's greeting. I just want to take it a verse at a time, kind of walk through the text. This is definitely one of those kind of introductory sermons into the series. So I'm going to do a brief exposition and some comments on these five verses, but then I want to give us a little bit of a roadmap in terms of where we're going to be going in the letter as a whole. I'm going to pick up on some of the major themes of the book just to kind of prime the pump and get us ready for what we're going to be experiencing over the next several months as we make our way through the letter. So if you'll put your eyes now on verse 1, you'll see Paul, that's who's writing the letter, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Again, reiteration, I'm not an apostle. I don't have this office, this authority of mine because of any human being whatsoever. God is the one who has made me what I am. God is the one who has anointed me and set me apart for this office. I am an apostle through Jesus Christ, a revelation of Jesus Christ to him. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you will know of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, where he has a vision of the resurrected Christ that is quite extraordinary and remarkable, that changes the course of his life forever. He has received revelation directly from the Lord Jesus and has been commissioned by none other than God the Father who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. So you can see, this greeting is different than pretty much any other greeting that Paul writes in his other letters. He gets right at it, man. He starts out like, all right, look, I'm, I'm Paul, I'm writing to you. You should know who I am because I helped start your churches. But let's just get this straight in terms of my authority and my office and where I'm coming from. Verse 2. Paul is reiterating there that there are brothers. He says, and all the brothers or all the brothers and sisters who are with me. He's just meaning other believers who are with me. I'm not doing this in isolation, friends. I'm not, I haven't gone rogue inventing my own doctrine, my own gospel. But I am in accord with like-minded orthodox, dare we say. Rightly believing brothers and sisters in the faith. These brothers who are with me affirm that the doctrine that I'm going to write to you about is good and true. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Verse 3, put your eyes there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I think we can really quickly read over verses like this because they're relatively common in the Bible. Grace and peace, right? That's even like the signature on some of our emails. And so it can become sort of perfunctory. It can become this phrase we just kind of throw out, grace and peace. But think about grace and peace for just a minute in light of the Lord Jesus and what he accomplished. In terms of your greatest needs and mine, I think grace and peace speak to our maybe two greatest needs that we have. The first and most fundamental need that we have is what? That our sin would be dealt with. For that we need grace. Unmerited favor. Because if anyone is going to stand on his or her own merit, it's not going to go well. Grace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Your only hope is grace. But then also, peace for your troubled conscience. You need grace to deal with your sin, and you need peace because you're troubled in your heart and your mind because you're a sinner. It's kind of the Lord to inspire these words. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty cool too. I mean, I, this is not the main point of this verse by any means, but it's cool that the Lord Jesus is mentioned on the level with God the Father. God alone can give grace to sinners. God alone can give peace to sinners in any lasting way. And the Lord Jesus is participating in the giving of grace and peace because He is like the Father. Verse 4, put your eyes there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and in particular about Jesus, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Again, this is easy to just kind of read over because there's a lot of language in the Bible about Jesus giving Himself up for sinners. But Jesus gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And there is no other way, none, for sin to be atoned for and for righteousness to be attained other than through that work. And notice that Jesus gave Himself for whom? Not for the holy, not for the worthy, or the righteous, or those were, who were His friends. right? He gave Himself for wicked sinners. He gave Himself for the unworthy, and those who were His enemies and deserved God's wrath. He gave Himself not for our merits. This matters now. He gave Himself not for our righteousness, in terms of the righteousness we bring to the table, he gave Himself not for our obedience in terms of how good we're doing. He didn't give Himself for our godly lives, but He gave Himself for our sins. This matters. That it's just like Romans chapter 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't clean yourself up. You didn't obey up to a certain point and then Jesus gave Himself for you. You did not make yourself righteous up to a point and then, okay, that's enough and now I'll give myself for you. You did not live a godly life up to a point or to a certain degree and then, yes, Jesus gave Himself for you. But He gave Himself for us while we were in the depth of and the horror of sin. And He did all of this. You see this in the latter half of that verse. He did all of this according to the will of our God and Father. This has always been the plan. That God would adopt a people. He would make them His children. Through the work of His Son. And they would know Him. And love Him. And worship Him. And enjoy Him forever. The plan is unfolding. We just sung about it. See the Father's plan unfold. Right? That's what's happening. And then finally in verse 5. B. 
because of who God is and what He has done, He is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And so that's how we're beginning this letter. We're beginning it with Paul's authority, his apostleship that's come from God, but then grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus, who gave himself for you not when you were righteous, but when you were a sinner. And because of who God is and what he's done for you, he deserves glory forever and ever. Amen. And so now, friends, having looked briefly together at those five verses, I want us to think about the letter big picture in terms of some of its major themes and where we're going to be headed in the coming weeks. So I've got a few headings here, and I'll give them to you one at a time. My first one is this in my notes. is about the great enemy of the gospel. The great enemy of the gospel. What is that? I would argue that the great enemy of the gospel, biblically speaking, is not worldliness or secularism. The great enemy of the gospel is legalism and moralism. Now that seems a little counterintuitive. Because in our day, if you think about the church and the states, and a lot of the stuff you read, a lot of the stuff that is preached from pulpits, we kind of rail against worldliness. We rail against secularism. We lament the direction of the culture. And a lot of that's legitimate, right? Lamenting. Things that are happening in the culture that are bad for people, that's legitimate. But I fear that oftentimes it comes across in the church and certainly to the world that the great enemy of the gospel is worldliness. And if we can just rid the church of worldliness, we'll be on the right track. Not to say that we don't want people living transformed lives. Of course we do. Of course we want people growing in grace and in knowledge. We want people being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. Yes and amen. But friend, biblically, you read the letters in the New Testament, you read the Gospels, and what the Lord Jesus is banging up against over and over and over again, it's not worldliness. It's not secularism. It is moralism and legalism that is the great enemy of the Gospel message. Why is that? It's because people, even if they're preaching Christ crucified for sinners, there's always this instinct and this desire to either altogether replace what Jesus has done with what you can do, or at a minimum to add to what Christ has done with what you can do. And that is not the biblical gospel. There can be different kinds of this addition. Sometimes it is flat out just the law proper. And by that we mean mainly the, the law of Moses. The law that God gave through Moses in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and then reiterates uh, even in Deuteronomy. The Levitical law. It could be that. But it could be other things that are derived from Bible, right? Like good works. We, we make good works a kind of law, Right? That you must have this and this and this and this and this in order to be right with God. Or maybe it's just even more subjective than that. And it's just our own kind of code that we want to add to the gospel. This codified Christian life of here are the ways that Christians do all of this stuff. And if you're not living like this, then you're not right with the Lord. There's all kinds of this addition that takes place. And it is the great enemy of the gospel. Yes, we do good works to the glory of God. We've talked about that many times. And I may even touch on that again today. Yes, we are concerned with the means that the Lord has given us for spiritual growth. And at the same time, we never want to add those to the gospel. Jesus Christ, His perfect righteousness counted to you through faith. His atoning death that paid for your sin counted to you through faith. His resurrection over sin, His triumph over Satan and the grave counted to you, applied to you through faith. We don't ever want to add anything to that good news. 
We'll be thinking about that a lot in the coming weeks. Second heading. This is just a, almost like a little aside, but I wanted to do this today just to prepare us for what we're going to be thinking about in the coming weeks. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes about the law. And by that I mean the law in the Old Covenant, the law of Moses, and its place, its use in the life of the believer. So I am of the, the group of people, and, and I believe all of the elders are united in this, in understanding that there are three uses of the law, biblically speaking. The first use would be, it's a revelation of God's character. Right? And so in seeing His good law, we understand who God is, His holiness. But then in comparing ourselves to that perfect standard, we understand ourselves to be in trouble. And that points us to the Savior. That's use one. The second use is just quite simply the restraint of human wickedness. Right? God gave us the law and wrote it into the consciences of humans in order to restrain human wickedness. And then finally, the third use of the law is the particular one for the Christian life. And that's where we would say, along with many through Christian history, that the law is a helpful guide for the believer. Right? It is, an, it is a tool to use to assess your life. It is a tool to use to see where you need to grow. It's a guide for the believer. But I want to be very clear about what the law was never meant to do, biblically speaking. The law was never meant to do two things. Number one, the law was never meant to justify, ever. No one ever has been justified by works of the law. No one. People have always been justified by faith in God, believing the promises of God and it is counted to them as righteousness. That's true as of Abraham on through today. We see that that's the case. I would argue from Adam to Abraham. That is the case. When we see a man like Noah who heard the word of God, believed the word of God, trusted God. So the law was never meant to justify. That is to make you righteous so that you could be reconciled to God. Never was its intention. The second thing that the law was never meant to do is to sanctify. The law in and of itself was never meant to sanctify you. I'll explain what I mean. It shows you where you need to grow. It shows you how you need to be sanctified. But the law in and of itself is powerless to change you. Powerless. Only the Holy Spirit of God working through the Word of God as we trust the promises of God can sanctify you and me. See, we gotta, this is where right thinking, it matters. And words matter. Precision matters. The law is good, but it could never justify and it could never in and of itself sanctify. Only God does those things. So that was my second heading. On just the law and its purposes. That's going to help you as you read this letter. And as you're thinking about what's going on in it. Third heading of where we're headed in this letter to the Galatians. Is that justification, that again is being counted righteous. Being able to be standing before God and not be condemned. Justification is by faith as opposed to works. Nobody's probably falling out of your chair right now. But let's just talk about this for a moment. Again, to reiterate, justification means being made right with God. It means being counted righteous so that you can stand before Him and not be condemned. And I would contend that it is right for you to read this word justification. Or when the Bible will say you have been justified. And you can understand that that has happened to you through faith in Christ, and that if you have been justified, you will be finally saved. Full stop. I don't want us to be separating in any way, bifurcating in any way, justification and final salvation. I think we should understand them to be not one in the same, but inextricably connected. 
Because the Bible will use terms like persevering, enduring. Of course we want to think about those things. But the scripture is also crystal clear. That to be justified really is to be born again by the Spirit of God. To be justified really means that you have been counted righteous because of the work that Christ has done. And you have taken hold of that by faith. And God gave you that. And that God is faithful to keep you. And that He is faithful to bring you into final salvation. And here's the thing. We've been talking a lot about, even a little bit this morning, before the service, we sang about it in the song, and we're going to think about it for a moment now. The Bible is, in a lot of ways, a story about two Adams. It's a story about the first Adam, the first human being, in whom we all fell. And then it is a story... After that, beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when God tells Adam and Eve that He's going to send one who will crush the head of the serpent, from that point forward, the Bible is about the second Adam. And everything in the Bible from Genesis 3.15 up to Him is pointing to Him. It's getting us there. And then everything after His arrival is helping us understand what He accomplished. And so if you have that understanding... Of the Scripture, two Adams, the first one and then the second one named Jesus, and what He accomplished, you understand that to be justified in that second Adam is to be completely reliant upon His work, not yours. So there's nothing that you can do or not do that will bring your justification into jeopardy once it has happened. Because it never had anything to do with you. Or your works. It had everything to do with Jesus and His works in your place. To be received by faith. So, when you see that, you have been justified. That is a hope-giving thing. That is an assurance-giving thing. Not because of you. Not because of the strength of your faith or your obedience or your godliness. It is an assurance and hope-giving thing because of Jesus and the fact that He has accomplished the law and fulfilled the law perfectly in your place. And you could never add anything to what He has done. And so you can rest, rest in what He has accomplished for you. And rest does not mean apathy. Rest means assurance, hope, joy, freedom unto good works. I've used these illustrations before, but I just I want to be crystal clear in still thinking about this justification by faith and not works peace. Set the law aside for a moment. Let's just talk about good works. Good works done by faith even. Let's talk about those. How should we understand them? If you've heard me give this illustration before, you're going to hear it again. The best way to understand this is with a biblical illustration of a tree and its fruit. A tree and its fruit. And to understand the relationship between the tree and the fruit. Let's get this into our minds and our hearts and let's own it. Alright, so. The fruit on the tree is evidence of life in the tree. We track it? We know the tree's alive because there's fruit on it. Cool. But the fruit on the tree, in and of itself, could never give life to the tree. Could it? No. Life doesn't come from the fruit. The fruit comes from the life. And so it's critical that we understand that good works as fruit of saving faith, good works as fruit of justification, could never in any measure contribute anything to our justification, to our spiritual life. And if we get that relationship that I just stated, that the life produces the fruit, not the other way around. If we ever get that mixed up, I mean, I'm talking fractionally, we have given away the gospel. This is an all or nothing. I I like to hold things in tension in the Bible. We like to hold things in tension in the Bible. There is no tension here on this particular piece. There's a good question to be asked. What is the place of good works? That's great. But in terms of this, it is, there is no tension. It is all Jesus and none of you. 
It is either Christ or you must hold to, fulfill, and keep the whole law. And we're going to think about that. It's all or nothing. Christ or law. And if it's Christ, there is not one speck of law, not one speck of good works that contributes anything to your standing before God. I want to take us back very quickly again to some words from a church council. A Roman Catholic council to be more specific. I read this in the Faith Alone sermon the last Sunday of October. I'll read it again. There was a council known as the Council of Trent that took place from 1545 to 1563. There were a number of sessions that met over those 18 years. And what it was was a council of bishops that were meeting to hammer out doctrine, essentially, in light of the Protestant Reformation. The Church of Rome was going to clarify its position on a number of things. Session 6, which took place January the 13th, 1547. Session 6 produced a number of canons or standards, rules, one of which was canon number 24 on justification. I just want to read this for us. And then I'm going to comment on it. It says this, If anyone saith that the justice received, that's justification, that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that those said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. I'm going to plain English this up a little bit. If anyone says that justification received is not preserved and even contributed to by good works, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. If anyone says that good works are merely the fruits of justification received, let him be accursed. This matters in our day. I think in the evangelical church, and by that I mean conservative, Bible-believing, Protestant Christians. That's what I mean by evangelical. I think we're pretty good on the contribution piece. We understand that, like, okay, good works can't contribute to my justification, to my standing before God. But I am afraid that sometimes the way we preach and talk and write, we make it sound like your good works are involved in preserving your justification. That your good works somehow keep you justified. And that's bad thinking. I want to use bad language about how bad that theology is. It's not biblical, right? To think in any way that you're working and your good works, your obedience, the fruit of the Spirit, any of those things, to think that that in any measure keeps you in right relationship with God is wrong. Those good works, that fruit of the Holy Spirit, is evidence of the internal reality that's happening. But it is not keeping you justified. God does that. You don't. And so we want to be, again, very clear about these things because it really matters for us and how we live life and how we frankly can go to sleep at night. How can I pillow my head knowing that God is good with me? It's only through these rock-solid biblical truths. And it's good to remember, as has already been stated, that God has never been in the business of justifying the godly. Romans 4, chapter 4 tells us that He justifies the ungodly. And that's you and that's me. Martin Luther writes this, and it's beautiful. He says, God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, restores life to only the dead, sanctifies only the sinners, gives wisdom only to the unwise fools. In short, He has mercy only on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Therefore, no proud saint, no wise or just person can ever become God's material. And God's purpose cannot be fulfilled in him. He remains in his own work 
and makes a fictitious, pretended, false, and painted saint of himself. That is a hypocrite. You want to cling to your own works? Christ is of no interest for you. You want to cling to your own wisdom, to your own code that you live by? Christ is of no benefit to you, and you have made yourself out to be a fictitious, false, hypocrite of a Christian. Next heading. These will be brief. So we just thought about justification is by faith, not works. The next heading is this. The Christian life is lived in the Spirit by His power as opposed to the flesh. The Christian life is lived in the Spirit by His power as opposed to the flesh. As we were thinking about a graphic for this sermon series, and we were just even thinking about like a title for the sermon series and other things, we had some good conversations about justification by faith, not works, but then also good conversations about life in the Spirit, not the flesh, because we're so prone to be thinking about this faith alone stuff on the front end, as though it happens there, justification's done, and now I just kind of go live the Christian life, kind of doing it, maybe with God's help, but I'm largely involved in how this goes. That's the general thinking, it seems to me. There's not a lot of talk about how the gospel applies to Christians. That's what I'm saying. If you were to ask the average person sitting in the pew in the church in the States, how does the gospel apply to you once you're saved? I think you would have a lot of blank looks. I don't ever want that to be true for us. We never move beyond the gospel, and we're going to have an exercise for 24 weeks in thinking about how we don't, and how we always live by faith, and how we always live based upon complete reliance in the Holy Spirit, not in our own power to do anything. We are talking about, so here we go, the Christian life is not a life of law, it is not a life of code, it is not a life of the binding of consciences, and it is not a life of asceticism. It is rather, this is what it should be, the Christian life is a life of Holy Spirit-empowered obedience. Holy Spirit-empowered obedience in the context of freedom in Christ. And that freedom in Christ, that Holy Spirit-powered obedience, it manifests itself in love, in joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit, right, from Galatians 5. We're going to get to think about this when we get there. Oftentimes those fruits of the Spirit are turned into the New Testament version of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have these things. I'm going to encourage us biblically, that's not at all how you should think of them. Those are the things that the Spirit of God, yes, strive for them, pray for them, and God by His Spirit, as we trust His Son in the context of the local church, works those things in us. We're going to think about that. I'm excited for that. Final heading. The entire Christian life is lived by faith in the Son of God and in the promises God has made through Him. The Christian life, the whole thing, is lived by faith in the Son of God, it's Galatians 2.20, and the promises that God has made through Him. You've heard me say this before and that's okay. The primary battle and fight of the Christian life is a battle for faith. It is a battle to believe God. It is a battle to believe His Word. To take His promises and cling to them. And yes, to heed His warnings. The battle is that so often, I feel like as I'm living my life on the ground, I feel like I'm God's enemy because I sin. I struggle. I'm discouraged by the sin in my life. How must God feel? Right? I feel as though I'm His enemy and the battle is to believe that what He has proclaimed in the heavens that I'm His child is true. That's the battle. When you feel like an enemy to believe that you're His kid. It's the fight of the Christian faith. 
is a battle to believe not only that, that I'm not his enemy, but that I am his child. There's the battle for faith to believe that Jesus really did give himself for my sin. That my sins, as many as they are, as horrible as they are, as consistently as they plague me, have really and finally been dealt with. Sounds like, how could that be? Faith in the work of the Son of God. It's a battle for faith that Jesus is no longer my judge, but He's my Savior. Right? Then when I stand before Him at the end of history, when He's on the throne, because you realize that Jesus is the judge. I don't know if people think about this. The great white throne judgment is Christ sitting on that throne. We often think of God the Father judging. Jesus will judge the nations, will judge the world. And you're like, oh my gosh, like I, I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm sinful. I, like I'm screwing up left and right. How is this going to go well? Faith that Jesus is the one who died for you. And he's going to be your judge. It's his righteousness that's counted to you. He prays for you. Who then is there to condemn? No one. It's a battle to believe that promise. And it's a battle to believe that Jesus is not the caster down of the afflicted, but that He is a raiser up of the fallen. I don't know if that's good English or not, but I'm trying. He does not cast down the afflicted, but He raises up the fallen. That's His posture. He is merciful and gracious. Right? In dealing with the sinners who have taken refuge in Him. You will never be put to shame. And finally, it's a battle to believe that Jesus is the merciful comforter of the heavy and the broken hearted. When you're burdened by your sin, when you're grieved by circumstance, and you're thinking, I just don't know about much. I don't know how this is going to go for me in the rest of my life. I certainly don't know about how it's going to go for me in eternity. Fight for faith. To believe and to trust and to live by faith in the Son of God in all things. I look forward to this series. I hope that you do too. But let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask Him for His help in trusting Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we acknowledge that, that we are sinners and we're in need of Your grace. And we acknowledge that we struggle so often to believe your promises. And we pray that you would, by your spirit ultimately, through your word, through the sacrament of the Lord's table, through your people, this local body, we pray that you would use all of these things in our lives to strengthen our faith. We pray that you would use all of those means and that you would use our services every week to fill us with hope, to fill us with assurance that we are in fact right with you through faith in your Son. We pray that you would be coming and doing that work now as we even prepare to come to the table this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.